Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 50. Now there is a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The day of preparation, by the way, would have been Friday, and the Sabbath would have been Saturday, and the resurrection would have been Sunday. Uh, verse 56, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Father, thank you for uh, this time to continue in worship of you. We do come before your word, and it is um, a powerful word. It is a living word. It is an eternal word. It is a word that we would do well to heed. Uh, There's so much darkness in us sometimes. There's so much rebellion in us sometimes. There's so much stubbornness in us. So I ask this morning that you would soften our hearts, that you would shape our wills, and that you would open our minds to grasp something new and something eternal from your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It really is no secret that if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is rebuffed, then Christianity implodes. It's not surprising that every year around this time we find those who come out in newspapers and in um, TV shows and all those kinds of uh, media things trying to debunk the resurrection of Jesus Christ because they know the truth. Christianity stands or falls with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we consider the resurrection of Jesus, we know that it's not just an appendix to his life story. It's not an appendix to the way that he lived here on earth. Rather, the resurrection is actually the very goal of his life. The resurrection is the objective of his life. It is the very purpose for which he came to this earth is to live and die and be raised again on the third day. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then he can save nobody else. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then we have no help in the present. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then we have no future hope of help 
either. Christian faith stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To hope in a resurrection that did not occur, as Paul tells us, makes us to be of all people the most pitied because we believe something that never happened. We shape our lives around something that did not occur. We are to be more pitied than anyone else. If it is not true, then all of us who have professed to be Christians for all of these years and for thousands of years before us, it has been, we have been proved then to have been living a lie. If the resurrection is not true, then we really have nothing to offer the world around us, our spouses, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our workmates. If it is not true, then a dead Savior is no Savior at all. But a resurrected Savior changes everything. A resurrected Savior changes the view that we have of the Scriptures because it validates the Scriptures which speak of His death and resurrection thousands of years before it took place. If the resurrection is true, then it affirms the promises of God not only about the resurrection, but towards us who believe in that resurrection. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, then we do have real hope, and it's a real hope that we offer to a hopeless world. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, then it gives real meaning to the phrase eternal life, because we know that death is not the end. The portion of scripture that I've read this morning is what we're going to look at. And it's found in the book of Luke, as we've mentioned. And Luke begins his book by telling us why he wrote the book. And it's good to be reminded of that, particularly when we consider something of the resurrection and its power and its influence on our life. Luke begins by telling us three things about why he wrote. First of all, he says that he, he wanted to compile a narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus. So he just went on a fact-finding mission and he talked to people and he investigated things and he searched things out and he was meticulous in his note-taking and he, he amassed this uh, amount of data about the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if he just had done that and just threw it out, we, it would be hard for us to make sense of it. So the second thing that he tells us is that he wanted to write an orderly account of these things. And so he began to arrange it. He began to sort of put it in chronological order in a way that made sense. So we start with the the birth of Jesus and we move through the growing up of Jesus and the life and the ministry of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. So we have an orderly account of the life of Jesus. And then the third reason that Luke tells us why he wrote the book is so that we might have certainty concerning, concerning what we have been taught. He wants to give us the facts in such a way that they are undeniable. He wants us to be able to read his writings and we can say, well, yes, that makes sense. Yes, I understand how that's been validated. And so there's a there's a purpose behind it to give us confidence and assurance in what he has written. So as we keep that in mind, then, as it it will help us understand the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. This is meant for us to make sense of these things. If there's a main idea, a main thought that I want to circulate in our heads even this morning, it's simply this that the empty tomb starts the road to, the, to revelation. That as we begin to consider the, re, the empty tomb, as we begin to think about why it was empty and how it came to be empty, as we begin to wrap our minds around that, then God begins to open up to us then the reality of the resurrection. And so as we think about these passages, and let's just work our way through this text this morning and just make some comments and observations about it. The first thing is simply in, in the first um, number of verses there, we realize that the burial of Jesus was not a foregone conclusion. Um, we might think, well, yeah, somebody dies, you bury them. Well, Jesus didn't just die a normal death. 
He died as a condemned criminal. He died under the Roman legal system. And the humiliation that a, a person experienced in the process of dying towards death was then carried on to the way that they treated the body. And so most often, those who were crucified, uh, according to the Roman tradition, were left to hang on the cross to be scavenged by birds and other small animals. Sometimes they were uh, taken down from the cross and they were just thrown into a common grave and weren't afforded a decent burial. It was no foregone conclusion that Jesus would be buried. In fact, even at this point, the release of a body that had been crucified depended entirely on the whims of the local magistrate who could say yes or no. When we think about Jesus, then we understand that all of those who knew him had really scattered. His 11 disciples that were remaining had, had, had left him and, and denied him and run in fear. There was nobody who was uh, a predominant leader amongst them that could have rallied around and come and asked for the body of Jesus. There was none of reputation amongst them. And so there's no um, assumption that the body of Jesus would ever even be buried. Enter Joseph. Joseph, a man of standing and reputation, a man of courage and boldness, a man who would happen to have a concern for the body of Jesus. All of the four gospel writers tell us something about Joseph. They tell us something different about Joseph. They add to our picture of Joseph. So by the time we've read all four of them, we have a much fuller understanding of who he is, how he acted, and what he did for the body of Jesus. And we find that when we read the four Gospels, we also find that uh, fullness of description in the four accounts of the Gospels. Until you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you have four different accounts of a similar event. Some people have looked at that and found that to be troubling. I look at that and find that to be one of the evidences to the fact of the conviction and the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because what we find there is not a story that has been cleaned up. It's not that they gathered the everybody that they wanted to promote the story and they said, okay, let's sit down in a room and let's hammer out exactly what we're going to say to the people. We've got to say this happened, this happened, this happened, this didn't happen, this didn't happen, and we've got to come up saying the same thing. No, when we find that, we find four different records. And what we need to do is tie those all together. When we tie them together, we get a wonderful understanding of what actually happened with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Each writer writes out of their own personal observations of the experience. Some were in deep sorrow, some were in fear, some were women, some were men, some were eyewitnesses, others had heard, but they all write of their accounts of the, of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it comes out as natural and as personal. But at the same time, there's an implicit harmony. When you get those events together and you put them together, they make sense. They fit together like pieces of a puzzle. The emptiness, or, or, or this is what we would expect, is it not? In real life, if you were to witness the same event and you gathered four people together who witnessed that event and you asked them what they saw, you would get four different accounts of that event. Somebody would be viewing it from this perspective. Somebody from that perspective. Somebody might have come 10 minutes later. Somebody might have been upset and only focusing on this aspect. Somebody might have known somebody in a personal relationship, so that's who they focused on. But when you piece together all of those witnesses of that event, you get a fuller picture and understanding of that event. 
It gives validity to the eyewitnesses of that account. Well, that's exactly what happened with the eyewitness account of the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The variation of the witnesses adds credibility to the resurrection account that we find woven throughout scriptures. So we come back to this man, Joseph. Now we, we find as we piece together the, the picture of him that he was a leader in the religious community. He was a rich man. He, he had a bit of means and therefore he would have had a bunch of servants uh, that could help him in what he was going to do. He was from Arimathea, a little town just outside of Jerusalem. The scriptures tell us that he was a good man, that he was an upright man, that he was a man that was a follower of, of the Jewish faith. And in fact, he was a man that was waiting for the kingdom of heaven. We'll find out that he was also a man that had been become a follower of Jesus Christ. He had embraced Jesus Christ as his master. But up to this point, he had been a secret disciple. He had not made known to others that he was actually a follower of Jesus. But there was a change that was beginning to happen in Joseph. And it's hard to kind of pin down to what actually were the circumstances that made him um, come out with his faith and, and make it public. But maybe it started when, when he had been sitting in the room with the council and they had been deliberating and deciding how they were going to arrest Jesus and how they were going to kill Jesus. And he just couldn't do that. And it says, Mark tells us that when they made the decision, it was unanimous. So Joseph must have excused himself from that body before they made the decision. Because it says that he hadn't consented to the decision that they made. And so maybe that was beginning to stir in him and he thought, I've got to identify with Christ finally. I can't remain a secret follower of his forever. He had little to lose now. And so as he had stood up before the Sanhedrin and walked out before their vote was taken, now he might as well go to uh, Pilate and ask for the body. This was an extremely bold move on his part, which took a lot of courage. He had been a secret disciple to this point, and now he's professing his faith, so to speak. You wonder why the change, maybe maybe it was he had watched Jesus die and there was something about the death of Jesus that had tweaked in him that hadn't tweaked in him during the lifetime of walking with Jesus. After all, wasn't it the Roman centurion who as Jesus died, he looked up at the cross and he said, surely this man was the son of God. And maybe at that point, uh, Joseph had said to himself, I can't keep this silent any longer. And so he goes and he asks Pilate for the body. He's no longer willing to stay in the shadows. And I think the truth of the matter is nobody can be, remain a secret follower of Jesus Christ forever. There will come a point in your life in which circumstances will collide or they will coincide to the point where you will have to express your faith. It might come in a classroom at school. It might come in a workplace. It might come talking with your neighbor. It might be with your spouse. But at some point, something will happen where you will have to finally acknowledge that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. As we think about a man like this in a situation like this, I think it does uh, encourage us to be gentle with people, to not be so quick to judge people and to make assessments on their relationship with God and their faith. There's a reminder that we all don't get to the same place at the same time in the same way, that there is a, a patience that we need to show one another as God works in our hearts and as circumstances work to draw us into public followers of Jesus Christ. But he went to get the body of Jesus. I think here we find a second evidence to the resurrection when we consider the body of Jesus. This is um, the fact that there was a body 
that he was actually dead. There are a lot of those out there who say, well, he didn't really die. He, he just sort of passed out. And in the coolness of the tomb, he woke up. Well, as you read the accounts, at least that we have in Scripture, and there's accounts outside of Scripture, but as you read the Scripture accounts, it's unmistakable that he was dead. It says that Joseph went and asked for a body. He took it down from the cross with help, and lovingly they would have washed it, and they would have wrapped it with linen individually, and they would have wrapped spices in between those linens, and they would have been aware if there had been a heart beating or if there had been a flicker in his eyes. They would have been aware of some signs of life in him, and they would have wrapped his body tight and completely. Not only that, we find the scriptures say that we had trained executioners who went to Jesus to determine whether or not he was dead. These guys don't make a mistake about these things. And as they came to Jesus, they realized that he was already dead. And rather than taking a mallet and smashing his shin so that he could no longer push himself up to breathe, they realized he was dead. But to make sure, they took a short little spear and they shoved it up under his ribs into his heart chamber and out flew blood and water. Evidence that he had died. Not only that, we have Pilate who was surprised when Joseph came and asked for the body and he sent a guard and he says, would you go and check and make sure this guy's really dead? The guy would have made sure he did his job right, went, checked and came back and said, yeah, he's dead. And then we had the Jewish leaders who had come to uh, Pilate the next day and they had watched and they had circled around and sat as Jesus was crucified and as he died on the cross and they came to him on the Sabbath and they said to, to um, Pilate, they said, listen, we got to put a guard over this tomb because while he was still alive, he said this, but he said that he would rise from the dead on the third day. We got to make sure that that doesn't happen. So the Jewish leaders were convinced that Jesus was dead. Nicodemus had come along with Joseph and had supplied 75 to 100 pounds of spices, which they used to wrap Jesus in. He would have been aware that Jesus was dead. The women who had followed uh, the whole events of uh, the crucifixion of Jesus and then had watched the men take his body down from the cross and prepare it for burial and set it in the tomb and roll the stone away, they knew that the body was dead. You see, this is crucial. Because if Jesus Christ didn't die then we are still in our sins. If Jesus Christ did not die, he has not paid the penalty for the sins of mankind. Because what does the Bible say? And we read it. The wages of sin is falling asleep. The wages of sin is death. And if Jesus is able to pay the penalty of your sin and my sin, then he had to die. The greatest sacrifice was really offered. The life of the lamb was actually taken away. We sang, worthy is the lamb. Why? Because he paid the penalty for our sins. He was raised by God. He is worthy of our praise and adoration because he paid the price for our sins. The penalty due to sin has actually been paid by our substitute. Sinners who believe in Jesus have very real hope. Their debt has been completely paid. Loved ones, it matters that Jesus died. But you notice something here about the care of the body of Jesus. You don't really detect it when you read it, but when you think about it, there is a, a certain pace, there's a certain hurriedness as they get the body ready for, 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 for burial. Um, Jesus had been up all night. He had been finally crucified at about 12 noon. And as you read the accounts, at 12 noon, there was this 
thick darkness that fell over all of the earth. It was almost a taste darkness. It was a tangible darkness. And during that three hours on the cross, Jesus suffered for the sins of mankind. Jesus experienced the full weight of the wrath of God. Jesus was punished in our place. And then the Bible says somewhere about three o'clock, three hours after he was crucified, Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then a couple moments later, he said, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost. At six o'clock, the Jewish Sabbath would begin. That meant that Joseph of Arimathea had three hours at most to go get permission to get the body, to get the body checked out, to make sure it was dead, to get it down from the cross, to wrap it up, to get it ready, to go into the tomb, to get a tomb that was close enough. And he gave his own tomb. They put the body in the tomb. They rolled the rock over the tomb. They made it home before the Sabbath began. There's a pace that's mentioned there. And it all is in keeping with what Scripture says and that Scripture be fulfilled. And this is the amazing thing that in a prophecy of Isaiah written 800 years before Jesus actually died, Isaiah the prophet wrote, He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal and he was put in a rich man's grave. Loved ones, there is again confirmation of scriptures and the validity of scriptures that before Jesus was ever crucified and buried, the prophet spoke about how he would be buried and where he would be laid. And in that short period of time, Jesus was put into this tomb. From a human perspective, the burial of Jesus was no foregone conclusion. But from a divine perspective, from God's perspective, it was the fulfillment of Scripture. And it was the way that the body was to be cared for. The next thing that we see in this passage is the priority or the place of priority that's given to women. This is uh, something I think that's significant. And we'll make a couple of comments in it in a moment. But I think we just noticed right away the word but at the beginning of chapter 24. It's always an important word. It's like therefore. When you see the word therefore, you ask, what is it therefore? Because therefore is a connecting word. It's a word that summarizes what's come before him. Well, but is also a connecting word. And so it connects what's about to come with what has already happened. And so we, we find here that, that um, at the first day of the week, that after Jesus has been laid in the tomb, uh, after, on the first day of the week, the women come to the tomb. And Jesus, or the, or the gospel writers, Every one of them gives a place of priority to the women as the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a rather substantial thing that there is such a focus on women. Uh, I had, as a side note, um, this past week, uh, I usually take Monday mornings and Wednesdays and, and study and prepare messages. It's a gift that this congregation gives to me to, to spend that time in preparation. But two months ago, I had chosen my sermon topic. I had it all ready to go and I knew what I was going to speak on and I got down in my study on Monday morning and I read it and I thought, no, it's just not right. This doesn't make sense. For the next two and a half hours, I read just about every passage on the resurrection I could think of and I thought about it and I prayed about it and nothing made sense. So about 8, 8.30, I walked into my um, into my house and Kathy was up and uh, she could see the, that I, I wasn't doing too well. And she said, what's the matter? I said, I'm just frustrated. She said, I can't figure out what I'm supposed to speak on Easter Sunday. And I just, I, I'm, I'm bugged about it. So I chatted with her for a couple of minutes and then went back into my study and sat down and got more frustrated. And about five minutes later, literally, Kathy comes in and she says, you know what? I think you should speak on Luke 24. 
And I thought, isn't that ironic that my wife, my helpmate, comes in and encourages me to speak on a passage that gives place to the priority of women. I think it's an amazing thing in light of Scripture, and this is sort of a side thing, that God says in the very beginning of the Bible that God created male and female in the image of God, male and female, he created them. There's equality that God says is beautiful between men and women, that we equally image God. And there's something about Christianity that gives such a high priority to the place of women in the context of their culture. And this is another, I think, evidence of the resurrection and, and the, the truth of the story. Because here we have these women who, who in that culture, in that day, in the first century AD, they couldn't even testify in a court of law. Their, their word was considered useless. It had no authority. It had no power. And so to use women as the first sources of testimony and giving evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ would almost serve like a fatal flaw in the presentation of the resurrection story. And yet God uses the weak things of this world to confound the wise. And here God uses the testimony of a group of women, the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, attested in all of the gospel writers to remind us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When these women came to the tomb, they didn't find what they expected, though. As they made their way to the tomb, they weren't really thinking all that clearly. I think grief does that to us Some. Um, some of you who have experienced grief know that it sometimes clouds your mind. It does impact your heart, and your heart is broken, and your mind doesn't always function as you would like it to function. And these women just pouring out with grief or making their way to the tomb, and all of a sudden they realize as they're on the way, well, who's going to roll away the stone? They hadn't thought of that. A big hunk of rock that was in a little rail in front of the tomb, and it took a lot of people to push that thing away. But they weren't thinking. They were just feeling and they go to the tomb, and when they get there, they realize all of a sudden that um, what they were expecting to find, they didn't find. The stone was rolled away. And as they stand stuck their heads into the, into, the, into the tomb, they also realize that what they were expecting to find wasn't there. There was no body. On Friday morning, his body was safe, and in the tomb on Sunday morning, his body is gone. Luke tells us they were baffled. From a human perspective, I guess that makes sense. If you had, had just buried a loved one and then went um, three days later and, and went to the cemetery plot and all, the ground was open and the casket was open and there's no body in there, you'd be perplexed. And so they were perplexed. And I'm sure what was going through their mind was stuff like, well, who took the body? We know it was here. We watched them put it in the tomb just a, a day and a half ago. We know it was here. Maybe they were thinking, who moved the stone? We saw this stone over the tomb when we first came here, and it's not here any longer. Maybe they thought, well, did we get the wrong grave? You know, there's lots of these graves, and maybe, you know, just in our confusion and whatnot, we got the wrong grave. We don't really know what was going on in their mind. We just know they were perplexed. They were baffled. Things weren't as they should have been. Isn't it strange, though, that they didn't consider that maybe the body had been raised from the dead? Isn't it strange that that wasn't the first thought that came to the mind? Oh, no, oh, he's raised from the dead. Let's go tell the disciples. They didn't do that. They were sorrowful. They were upset. They had come to prepare a body. They had heard what Jesus had spoken about his resurrection, but they hadn't listened. 
See, that's what tunnel vision does to us. Sometimes we only hear what we want to hear, or sometimes we only hear with a certain perspective, and we we, we blank out all the other things that could give us a good picture on things or a good perspective on things. And so they had tunnel vision as they came to the tomb that morning. But there was an empty tomb. And that was the road to revelation for these women and for the rest of the disciples. Because we see as we start to listen to what's going on and watch here that their confusion gives way to clarity as they hear God's word. That is such a critical point for us to remember. Their confusion gives way to clarity as they hear God's word. I'm sure that, I don't know, I've never seen an angel. Um, I don't think angels make the kind of appearances like they did in the Bible times and certainly around the life and events of Jesus' life, but... As they gather around the angels, the angels say, behold, behold is not language that we use very often. At least I don't use it in conversation. I don't drive with Kathy and say, behold, did you see the mountains out there? Um, you know, or behold, did you see the dog run after the cat? We, we don't use, we use like, whoa, did you see that? Or yikes, is that ever an amazing sight? So, so, you know, we've got to kind of give it a little bit of context. So we might say, whoa, what are you doing here? It's kind of like uh, the angels when they appeared to the shepherds in the field. The first time it simply says, suddenly an angel appeared to the shepherd. They were doing their thing. They were shepherding their sheep and whoa, an angel appeared. And then a little bit later it says, suddenly a whole host appeared. And so there's a whole bunch of angels in their clothing. And the first words to these women is a word of rebuke. It's a mild rebuke. And this is what begins to turn on the lights in them. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? That really is the heart of the Easter message. Why do you look for the living among the dead? You see, the women had come to a tomb looking for a body. That's why they came with all the spices and the perfumes. That was their whole focus. Well, he died, he was buried, he's got to be there. And the angels start them to think in a different way. Why have you come this morning? Why have you gotten up out of bed and come to church this morning? Some of you might have been forced to come because your parents say, this is what we do. We're going to church on Easter Sunday. Um, Some of you might come because this is tradition in your family. Some of you might come because you just come to church on uh, every Sunday. And so this is just another Sunday. But what have you come to celebrate? This is really the heart of Christianity, what we gather here to celebrate. Are you convinced that Jesus is alive and well? You know, there are people who say that that they can have faith that Jesus is risen in in their heart, but he's still, his body is still in the tomb and it wouldn't affect their faith. You have no faith. If Jesus' body is still in the tomb, what do you believe in in your heart? Jesus is not among the dead. He is among the living. I was listening to somebody chatting about this the the, the other day, and and they made a, a point which which sort of like, that makes sense. And they were commenting, you know, how there's an increase in the supernatural and a desire for people to be connected with supernatural things, and people are seeking to connect um, living with the dead, and they're they're seeking to, to connect them with seances or or through necromancy or through various uh, tools. Uh, mediums are are sort of the big fad nowadays. It seems they're growing in popularity, and there are people that are running around and thinking they're reincarnations from another life. They believe that they've come back in another body and in another form to live another life. And so they believe in some kind of resurrection of the dead or some kind of living amongst the dead. And yet you say to these people, well, you know what? 
Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and he lives today. And they shoot back and you can't expect me to believe that. And I think, why? where's the disconnect? Why is it that we can communicate with the dead? I don't believe we can, by the way. That's a side note. Um, But why is it that we believe that, but we won't believe that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead? That's what these angels said to these ladies there. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Remember. Remember. This is where we begin to get evidence. First, we've got evidence because there's an empty tomb. Now we have the evidence of the, the angels who give this testimony to the to the risen Lord. And it's, they say to them, they give them divine words. They give them biblical words. And, and this is good news in the nutshell. He says, remember how he told you while he was still at Galilee. They don't give any new revelation. They don't say, well, I've got a new word from God from you. They say, remember that when you were walking with him a few months ago and, a, and maybe a year ago, how Jesus was talking to you. And do you remember the things that he said to you? This is no new information. Jesus said this is what would happen. He said, I would be handed over, I would be crucified, and I would be raised on the third day. Remember! And it's all of a sudden that all these lights begin to flash in these ladies' minds. And the power of the word of God begins to turn on a light inside of them. I, I just want to say this real quickly because I, I think this is important. The angels say that to them in verse um, 24, uh, it, it's, a, it's a word that we can easily skip over. It says in verse 7 that the Son of Man must be delivered. Luke uh, uses that little Greek word day uh, more than any other gospel writer. In fact, he uses it 18 times. It's a word of necessity. It's a word, a word that, that implies that it has to happen or that it has to take place. And there's this amazing reality that as we think about God's plan of salvation and God's unfolding of this world, it wasn't just sort of, oh boy, do I have trouble. We gotta figure out how to save these people. Okay, Jesus, you're gonna die. No, it wasn't like that at all. That from the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ was the lamb that was slain. There is a divine necessity in the events of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luke even says in, in Acts that according to the divine and the preordained plan of God, Jesus was handed over, he was crucified, and he was raised by the Father on the third day. There is a divine necessity to the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the angels then say three things. He said, he's got to be given over. You remember he told you that. He told you as he walked to you that one day he would be given over to the to the, the authorities and they would punish him and they would falsely accuse him. And then he said, and he would be crucified. He specified the way that he would die. He would be given over, he would be crucified, but he would be raised on the third day. The vindication of his life was the fact that God had accepted his perfect sacrifice on the cross. And the angel said to him, remember, that's what Jesus said to you. And as I say, then all of a sudden, they remembered and their confusion begins to give way to clarity. The angels bring them revelation they can't deny. They know that the angels are godly because they bow down and they fall down their faces and they bow down in terror before them. They hear the message of God. They remember the connection that Jesus had promised. And now it's not only dawn in a physical sense outside, but it's dawn inside of them. There's a light going on. The sun is beginning to rise in their hearts and they're beginning to say, oh, that's right. This is what Jesus said would happen. 
and their tunnel vision is giving way to word vision. It's all of a sudden now, now their perspective has been blown apart as they think about the word of God. Words that Jesus had spoken earlier now begin to make sense. Loved ones, the word of God is absolutely essential to our daily lives. It is the word of God that brings clarity to the confusion that we face every single day. There's something about the perspective. There's something about the power. There's something about the purity. There's something about the divine nature of the word of God that as we read it, as we think about it, as we meditate it, it gives us insight into our marriage. It gives us insight into our kids. It gives us insight into our relationship. It gives us insight into spiritual things. It gives us insight into hope that we wouldn't get if we weren't in the word of God. Why is it that we don't spend more time in the word? Why is it that we just maybe hear the word read on Sundays and, and that's enough for us? Why is it that we allow so much in our life to crowd out 15, 20 minutes a day in the word of God? It's such a dangerous thing because that's when we get fuzzy in our thinking. The word of God brings clarity to the confusion in our lives. There's a story that uh, Jesus tells about a rich man who dies and goes to hell. Yes, I do believe in hell. And one day we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. But um, just enough to say this. There's a rich man and dies and goes to hell. And when he's in hell, he's in great torment there. And as he's in torment, he could see the comfort of Abraham and Lazarus, who was on the other side of this great chasm. And I find it interesting that, that as this, this, this rich man who is in hell is looking to the other side of this chasm, all that he wants is a little bit of water to relieve his pain. He says, I just want somebody to dip their finger in some water and touch it on my tongue so I can get some relief from the pain of where I am. He's not concerned about repentance. He doesn't care about God because that's what hell will be like. There's no repentance in hell. And so all he's concerned is about just a little bit of relief. But as he's down there, he starts thinking about his five brothers who have not yet died. And he says to Abraham, I want you to send Lazarus to go tell my brothers that this place is real and I don't want them to end up where I am. And I say that carefully because in the last couple of months, I've heard of two different occasions in which people have said that if their loved ones and their family is in hell, they would rather be there with them than in heaven. That is such a misunderstanding, loved ones, of the terrible reality of hell and an eternal separation from God. And in fact, this story that Jesus tells of this rich man says as he's in hell, go tell my brothers, I don't want them to end up where I am. And so Abraham says to him, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have the word of God. But he said, no, Father Abraham, if somebody would go from the dead, they will repent. Well, Jesus did all kinds of miracles and nobody repented. But he says this, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if somebody rises from the dead. In other words, the life-transforming, perspective-giving work that we need comes from the word of God and nowhere else. We need to be those who find clarity in our confusion from the word of God. The empty tomb then starts the road to revelation for us. You need to ask that question. The evidence is, is, is unmistakable that the tomb was empty. Why was it empty? 
As you wrestle through that question, you begin to wrestle with that question, I believe that eventually if you wrestle honestly with it, it will lead you to the perspective that, that the women started to get here. And it will lead you to the perspective of the angels. Why do you look for the living among the dead? And you will come to the point where you all of a sudden realize the only explanation for an empty tomb is a risen Savior. As these ladies go back to the men, it all appears to be nonsense. Why is it that men are sometimes so stubborn? <laughs> Half of us are men here, you know, but, but why is it that, that we're like that? The women come back to them. This is, you know, there's two instances. One, the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They said, we had hoped that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things has happened. So they acknowledge that, 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 um, that uh, Jesus had spoken about these things. It's, Moreover, these two men said, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and they didn't find his body. They came back to us saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of us who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see him. What is it with us sometimes that we have such thick skulls that we won't listen? This was prevalent among the disciples. The conclusion of these men, when they heard the words of Jesus, or the words of these women to them, in verse 11, was this. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. Do you know what that word means? It's a, it's a word that's used in medical references in the time period then. And it's a word that use, is used to the delirious effects of somebody that's various, very sick. So they are basically saying to these women, you guys are nuts. You guys are speaking nonsense. What are you telling us that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is risen from the dead? Far from a group of men ready to take on the world, we have 11 skeptics. We have 11 men who are saying, you guys are nuts. I'm glad that the scripture doesn't end there. In verse 12, we get another but. And I just like to say, check it out. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in at the linen. He saw the cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Something tweaked in Peter. I don't know what it was. Peter, Peter was always the impetuous one. Peter was always the spontaneous one. Peter was always the first one to sort of set aside a convention and set aside reality and just jump into things with both feet before thinking about it. His fear often took the back seat to curiosity. He was the one that when they were out in the boat in the rough seas and, and they looked out and they, they saw a, a figure walking to them and they said, this is a ghost walking on the water. And as he got closer and closer, they realized, no, this is Jesus walking on the water. And Peter, without thinking, said, Jesus, tell me to jump in the water and come walk out to you. So he jumps out of the boat, walks on the water to Jesus until he looks away and he starts sinking. But at least he had the guts to jump out of the boat and start walking on the water to Jesus. He's also the one, though, that we read who, when Jesus said, all of you are going to die, he said, no, I'll never deny you. I'll never deny you. Everyone else will, but not me. And Jesus said to them, before the rooster crows tonight, you will deny me three times. And we find him denying Jesus. In fact, the last time denying Jesus was such strong language, he swore. I don't bleep and bleep and bleep and know this guy. I know nothing to do with this bleeping guy. He just, he denied him totally. Something tweaked in him. 
All of us, maybe he started to remember the words of Jesus. Remember, maybe in his heart he was starting to think, maybe there's hope. Maybe there's hope for me. I'm, I denied the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but he's alive. Maybe I can see him and, and we can make things right. And so it said Peter leapt up and he ran to the tomb. And when he saw the linen cloth lying there, he left marveling. I think God was doing a work in his life and in his heart. The empty tomb for Peter was the road, the beginning of the road to Revelation. So as you're here today, I want you to think about the resurrection. I really do. What's going on in your heart and life today? I know there are probably many of us here who who we affirm the resurrection. We understand not only the facts of the resurrection, we understand, um, uh, you know, the, the biblical testimony to the resurrection, but not only that, we have resurrection power inside of us because Jesus Christ has transformed us. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to have gone from death to life. How do you know, Paul? Well, it's my experience. You know, you ask me now how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. There's a reality that I once was one who was just disobedient to God and hated God and doing my own thing and living my own way. I was doing things that I thought I was in control of, but rather those things were in control of me. And my life was spiraling out of control. And one night back in 1979 at a church service, I heard the call of Jesus and felt him draw me to himself. And I asked him, to change me. I said, I believe in who you are. I don't know much about you, but I believe in who you are. Take my sin. And a transformation took place. I'm not perfect. I still mess up so often. So often that it drives me to despair sometimes. But I know that he lives because he lives within my heart. And so you can have that same assurance today before you go home. Yes, you've heard about some of the facts of the resurrection. Yes, you have, you, you know, we've, we've talked about some of the proofs behind the resurrection. That's not enough to know, though. You have to come to the place where you say, but I believe, Jesus, you died for me. I believe that you were raised for me. Will you not save me this morning? And you can leave here And you can be among those who know exactly what the angels said when they said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. You can have everlasting life even this morning.